HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. This episode of The Big Food Question is brought to you by Pop Menu, which helps turn first-time guests into regulars for your restaurant. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com hrn. This money is colonized money. You know, it comes from a lot of these big foundations. Their endowments come from businesses that exploited and enslaved people that stole land. And, you know, this goes back 150 years. But that is the basis of our philanthropy today. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. This episode is produced in collaboration with The Counter, a nonprofit, independent, nonpartisan newsroom investigating the forces shaping how and what America eats. I'm Kat Johnson. Today we're asking, are philanthropies doing enough to support native food sovereignty? This is a big and complex question, and it's one that Marilyn Noble digs deep into for her reporting at the counter. I am an independent food and ag journalist and a contributing writer at the counter. This story begins as Marilyn was covering the impacts that COVID-19 was having on tribal communities. Well, what happens in a place like the Navajo Nation is that, you know, there are very few grocery stores. So people have to drive for hours to get to an off-reservation grocery store in Winslow, Arizona, or Flagstaff, Arizona, or in Gallup, New Mexico. So, you know, it was hard to get food anyway. And then when the pandemic started, this was magnified, but it was especially hard on the Navajo reservation because it's so huge. And what happened was as food became scarce and people here in Arizona, the food banks especially came together and started trucking food in, but you know, distributing it was an issue and communicating about the distributions was an issue. 
So what happened is a lot of people said, you know, maybe we need to start thinking about growing our own gardens and producing our own food. For many indigenous communities, the fight for food sovereignty didn't just start with the pandemic. I spent some time last year before the pandemic. I was on the Pine Ridge Reservation for a few days, and I spent some time with Nick Hernandez, who is part of the article. And Nick is just an amazing guy. He's young. He's got this great vision for what he wants to accomplish. And he told me that there are so many resources on Pine Ridge, which is 2.2 million acres. And, you know, there's a real need and a real desire in the people there to start feeding themselves. Nick finished college in 2006 and returned home to the reservation. His grandmother started teaching him how to garden, and that led him to founding a nonprofit organization focused on building gardens and local food systems on Pine Ridge. And he went through his own adventure with trying to lease 15 acres to build a demonstration farm. There are two huge obstacles to food sovereignty in tribal communities across the country, and those are kind of you know, inextricable from each other. One is the access to land. It's very hard for citizens of tribal nations to access large chunks of land. And this goes back to the treaty days. If you do have access, trying to do anything on that land is a bureaucratic nightmare. So land access is one huge problem. And then that ties into the other, which is access to capital. You know, if you don't have land or hard assets, it's very hard to get bank loans or financing of any sort. So a lot of projects just naturally end up going the foundation grant route, especially if you're a very small nonprofit in a tribal community that, you know, doesn't have many other assets. So I think that's the biggest reason that philanthropies play such a huge role in what happens in tribal communities. So grants might be the best option for funding. However, that doesn't mean they're easy money. The story took a a detour there, as stories often do. And I started digging into the philanthropy piece of it a little bit more. And as I did that, I realized when you are not involved in these projects on a day-to-day basis, you know, you, you hear about these big foundations and you think they're doing really great work. But the truth is, they are doing great work in some areas but they're not succeeding in others. What happens with grants is that, first of all, you have to write your grant application to meet the standards of the grant. And that may not always be an exact fit for what you're trying to do in your community. So, you know, you sometimes have to fund a project that isn't exactly a fit. That's one problem. Another problem is that the reporting requirements for a lot of grants are really difficult. There's a lot of paperwork involved and a lot of data collection 
And then the other thing is that, you know, grants are generally not very big. You get a $20,000 grant and that's supposed to get you up and running, but a lot of grants are very specific. You, they can't be used for business operations or things like that. So you hamstring people when they're caught in this cycle of doing all this paperwork to get little sums of money. You may be thinking that this seems overly complicated. Why do grants work this way? While each foundation or organization is different, Marilyn looks closely at private foundations in particular. By definition, a private foundation is an organization that purports to serve a good cause, but is not in itself a charitable organization. In other words, they may not have a 501c3 or other government-assigned status. One private foundation you've probably heard of is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's the largest in the U.S. with over $50 billion in assets, and they donate about $5 billion annually. And this is important. They get to decide where that money goes. Generally, philanthropies, they have a lot of foundation money. That's what they are. They're foundations. Somebody has given them an endowment, and so they invest that money usually in Wall Street vehicles, and then they give 5% of their endowment to projects that they deem supportable. And, you know, that's not just agriculture and it's not just native projects. It's projects all around the world and all across the board. To clarify, in order for private foundations to enjoy being largely tax-exempt, the IRS requires that they pay out at least 5% of their annual average net assets for charitable purposes. They might be giving away money from the goodness of their hearts. However, the act of awarding grants is a way to legally protect their accumulated wealth and the money that they make on their investments. Another important thing to note from Marilyn's reporting Less than 1% of all philanthropic giving goes to Native American projects and causes, and most of that goes to museums and universities, where it has very little, if any, impact on Indigenous people themselves. So this story is about how philanthropy falls short, especially in helping Native food projects get off the ground. You know, I talked to a couple of different people who live on tribal lands and are trying to establish projects that contribute to food sovereignty. And then I also talked to a couple of Native Americans who are involved in philanthropy and have been for a long time. So I tried to bring the Native voices into this story as much as I could. I think that as a white person and someone who always thought, you know, I'm pretty aware and I I want to do a good job for my Native brothers and sisters and the people of color that I know. I have started to realize there is so much I don't know. And I'm just one person. These foundations have thousands of people in them who don't know. So I think it's really important that we, as white people, step back and, and acknowledge, yes, We do have white privilege, 
it's not that we're bad people. It's that we don't have that frame of reference. When we come back, we'll hear how some tribal communities are reimagining their relationship with philanthropies. My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth-generation hog farmer, and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever, and are only fed a high quality, 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming. Raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. This episode of The Big Food Question is brought to you by Pop Menu. Restaurants across the country are reopening, and if you're a restaurant owner, it's more important than ever to focus on your guests' experience. That's why I want to tell you about Pop Menu. It gives restaurant owners the marketing tools that can turn new guests into happy regulars. Pop Menu transforms your restaurant's online presence with patented and dynamic user-friendly menu technology on your own website. No more boring, difficult-to-update PDF menus. But PopMenu is more than just an online menu. It's an all-in-one set of digital tools that help strengthen the relationship between your restaurant and your customer. PopMenu enables you to cater your own website to your guest's comfort level, whether they want to order online and get delivery or venture out for safe in-person dining with contactless menus. So if you're a restaurant owner, try Pop Menu today. And for a limited time, listeners of The Big Food Question can get $100 off their first month and lock in one unchanging monthly rate. That's at popmenu.com HRN. Welcome back to The Big Food Question. We're talking with Marilyn Noble, contributing writer at The Counter, about how philanthropic giving falls short in supporting Native food sovereignty. In her piece, which was published on March 1, 2021, Marilyn talks to several people who offer alternative ways that foundations could invest in tribal communities. Zach Ducheneau, who is now the USDA's director of the Farm Service Administration, he's been in this area pretty much his whole life. He's also, he's from the Cheyenne River tribe in South Dakota. And 
he is a rancher. He understands how this all works. And his whole thing is that, you know, if these philanthropies, instead of giving people these little grants, would actually take some of their Wall Street money and invest in native enterprises, then there would be an opportunity to build real entrepreneurial businesses that could, you know, have a a sizable impact on tribal economies. You know, you have to have patient capital because a lot of these projects don't necessarily turn around a big profit in five years. Actually, investing in tribal communities would be a major shift in the way foundations operate. Instead of focusing on that 5% of assets that they're required to give away, we're talking about foundations viewing native enterprises as a way to build wealth. Marilyn explained that getting there would be very hard. In many cases, other organizations are stepping in to help fill in that gap. So what's happening in a lot of cases, like with First Nations Development Institute, they're an intermediary. You know, they are a nonprofit that is run by Native Americans. They are connected in communities, so there is a great level of trust there. And so a lot of the big foundations will give them funding and then let them disperse it in the best way they see into the communities. Edgar Villanueva is also doing something similar with his organization, which is called Decolonizing Wealth. He has a fund called Liberated Capital, and he told me that, you know, he's starting to see funding from the bigger foundations because they know that he is plugged into those BIPOC communities. There's trust there. He understands what they need, and there's a willingness to work together. Another way that some philanthropies are trying to better support Native communities is by first looking at the makeup of their own organizations. What's happened is a lot of of foundations, some of whom have really large staffs, they've started hiring more Native Americans and people of color at lower level jobs. But you have to work those people into real decision-making spots. And what happens is when people are recruiting to fill philanthropic positions, recruiters don't have an understanding of Native Americans and how they live. For example, they don't always realize many, many Native Americans live in urban settings. So it's easy for them to go to work in a philanthropy down the street. You know, not everybody lives on reservations and has to move to a place where the jobs are. So there's that big gap in cultural understanding. There are some organizations, some foundations who are cognizant of that and are working to move people up through the ranks. But, you know, that's a slow process. To take it back to the headline of Maryland's reporting, quote, funders want to help ensure Native food sovereignty. Many in those communities want philanthropy to do better, end quote. It will probably take a long time for philanthropies to change the way they give out grants. In the meantime, there are other, more direct ways that funders and all of us can support Native enterprises and nonprofits. 
we need to honor and recognize that people are doing what they need to do to make their communities better. And they're doing that in spite of the system that they find themselves in the middle of. And so if all of us, and especially people who have access to money, can start building bridges and learning and listening, which is one thing that liberated capital does. I don't think I talked about that, but liberated capital has a giving circle. And so you can give small amounts of money on a monthly basis to join the giving circle, but then you actually get to interact with and know the people who are benefiting from your donations. Edgar Villanueva, who founded Liberated Capital, you know, he has created this way for people to interact. He does Zoom calls with people who are beneficiaries talking about their businesses. So building community around that, I think, is so strong and so powerful. And you don't have to be a Ford or a Rockefeller or Bill Gates to participate in that. You can put your $20 a month in and really make a difference, not just for people that you're giving to, but as Edgar puts it, he's he's offering a bridge to people's own humanity. So it's not about just giving. It's a reciprocal thing, which is a very, you know, in his book, he talks about reciprocity being a, a very simple construct of most native cultures. You know, it's not me giving something to you. There's not quid pro quo, but there is the cyclical nature of it. I'm going to give something to you because I know that down the road, something will come back to me when I need it. So that's what his giving circle is all about. And I think that is such a powerful way for, for anybody to get involved. If you want to read Marilyn Noble's full piece on the counter, click the link in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we continue to address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions that you'd like this show to answer, you can email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode go to Marilyn Noble. This episode of The Big Food Question was produced in collaboration with The Counter, a nonprofit, independent, nonpartisan newsroom investigating the forces shaping how and what America eats. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Kevin Chang-Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. 
The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.